John chapter 16, we're reading the final section here, starting at verse 25. This is right in the middle of Jesus' teaching, so we're picking up with his words. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. Because you've loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Thanks be to God for his word this morning. As we wrap up this chapter 16, we want to do so under the heading of our theme of overcome, but under the subheading of courage and a sure victory. You noticed that, didn't you? He didn't say in verse 33, I will overcome the world. What did he say? It's a done deal. I don't know about you, but however many times I've heard it said that when God says something, it's as good as done, I still need to hear it again and again and again. And is it not true of Jesus' 12 closest friends in our text this morning that they would need to be hearing things again and again and again to have that courage in the sure victory of Christ that he had That again, this is the dark night of the soul for Jesus himself. His betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion is impending. Things have been set into motion that can't be undone. He is on the path to the cross. And if anyone should be overcome by sorrow or by fear or by worry, it should be the one who is to face not only Roman crucifixion, but the cup of God's wrath. The generations and generations of sinfulness of God's people poured into one cup. This is theoretically, this is a symbolic language, of course. But you know in the other Gospels that when Jesus goes to pray in the garden, he says, Father, if there's any other way, let this, what? Cup pass from me. The cup is on its way. And though Jesus' prayer was just that, if there's any other way, let it pass away from me, He knew the truth. There was no Passover for the lamb. Jesus would drink the cup. And is he afraid? Is he worried? Is he anxious? Is he scared? Is fear overcoming the heart of our Savior in this moment? Again, we see him praying in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They they specifically point out that Jesus asked the Father, is there another way? What did he say so soon after that? 
For us, the space between let this cup pass from me and nevertheless not my will but your will be done, there could be decades between those kinds of prayers, right? Our prayer life could be simply expressed in that very thing. Lord, let this cup pass from me and the next cup and all that tribulation, all that the world's going to throw at me, will you let that all pass from me? But to get us from what Jesus prays in the honesty of his weak flesh with the power of his triumphant divinity. That could take us forever to be able to bridge that gap. But Jesus, I believe in the same breath, basically says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And those words seem to connect to Jesus' confidence in the end of this passage as well. A sure victory. Let's consider the call of our passage this morning to find courage in Christ alone. The simple call, but it is not always the simple things that are easy, right? Some things are straightforward and understandable, but harder to do, harder to embrace. Find courage in Christ alone. It's a children's Sunday school lesson, isn't it? You read a story like David and Goliath and think, David had courage when all the Israelites were afraid. Be like David. Let's pray and go home. Courage is a harder thing to find than it is to identify. So far in John chapter 16, we've noticed the Holy Spirit advantage that in the mystery of God's plan, he tells us that it is better for the Son to go away so that the Spirit might come. Hard for the disciples to grapple with that. The Spirit would come, and we know we've got the light of the further revelation of God here to say, hey, I see what Jesus means. The Spirit lives inside of every believer. The presence of Jesus is available moment by moment. We just read this past week in the Jesus Storybook Bible, the story of Jairus and his daughter. And and I love that in, in that, and certainly in Scripture, we see it too. We see Jairus had to make a journey to get to Jesus. And that was... A quick journey. That was it. He was running. He needed to get to Jesus because his daughter was dying. There were serious circumstances. Getting to the physical location of Jesus was the first part of him actually getting that prayer to him. Church, you don't need to get to the physical location of Jesus in this world. He's with you by his spirit. That's the Holy Spirit advantage. Jesus then called us to overcome our sorrow, knowing that our sorrow would be turned to joy. This is what we just sang in our hymn uh, previously before the sermon, yet again, towards the end here. Knowing that all the things that we face, disappointment, grief, and fear will be gone. Sorrow will be forgot. Love's purest joys will be restored. So be still, my soul. Last week, though it wasn't part of John 16, we got a glimpse of our heavenly home, of why, why Jesus was so sure that his greatest desire and his end goal, his mission, was to return back to the Father, to be in the Father's presence. We see how heaven is nothing without the presence of God himself. But until that day, take heart, church. Be courageous in the face of all the tribulations that you might feel. Overcome the fear of this world by finding courage in Christ alone. Well, Christ himself shows us his courage in this passage, doesn't he? 
He says towards the end, you will all leave me. You'll be scattered each to his own home and leave me alone. Now, I don't know about you, but if I lived my life in the life in the presence of friends and every moment of every day traveling to and fro with my closest friends that basically became my family, the idea of being separated from them would be enough to crush my courage. To be separated from the church today would be enough to crush our courage as well. Part of our resource of courage is to be found in each other because Christ himself dwells in each and every one of us if we're in Christ, right? So it is important for us to tell each other. I mean, that's what we're doing right now as we look at God's word. Take heart, church. You need to tell that to your brothers and sisters this week. You need to receive that from your brothers and sisters this week. And you need to find it in Christ alone. You see that Christ's courage was not dependent upon his circumstances in this way. The way he presents his courage is simply this in verse 33. I have said these things. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Move back a little bit. Yet I am not alone. End of verse 32. I am not alone. The Father is with me. The presence of God. That is where courage comes from. Courage is not going to be found within yourself, church. You need to find it in Christ alone. You need to find it in the same place that he has, in the Father. And that's what he'll call us to as we consider the earlier portion of this passage as well. In verses 25 through 28, we can see the mission of Jesus yet again restated. He talks about how he has been speaking to them in figures of speech. This most specifically might draw our minds back to that figure of speech that he gave us two weeks ago. When he said in verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. When she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into this world. Then he explains himself, also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. No one will take your joy from you. He's been speaking in figures of speech, but not just in that mini parable, as it were, but throughout his whole explanations in chapter 13, 14, 15, and now 16. In some way, you might say that Jesus has been speaking in figures of speech for the entirety of his ministry. There's a distinction he makes in the Gospel of Matthew where he says that he speaks to the crowds in parables, but he reveals the truth of the parables to his disciples. But even in some way, before the mission of Christ is accomplished on the cross, there is still this hiddenness about Christ among those who have committed to follow him. We share in that to some degree today because there are still some things we find in scripture that are not so easy to understand, right? The number one reason why we often don't read our Bibles is because we look at it and we say, I don't even know if I'll get anything out of it. You get to your Bible reading plan and you're in the book of Isaiah and you go, I think this is a great place to stop, right? Don't know if going any further is going to make any sense for me. It's going to take a little bit too much work. But Jesus says that he's spoken in figures of speech up to this point He's expressing that the words of God are veiled in one sense. He's not talking about the technicalities of interpreting a book like Isaiah, but he's talking about the spiritual truth that lies in his words that are actually veiled to those that have not received him by faith, and even to those who have received him by faith at this point. He's promised in verse 7 that he's going away and he's going to bring the helper who's going to guide in all truth. 
So those figures of speech, it's going to be different. There's going to be a removal of the veil, as it were. And you see this in your Christian life, right? As you begin to study the word and as you remember themes and you understand more things culturally and as you, more importantly, as you begin to apply the truth of God's word to your life, the veil, as it were, is being removed. But he also shows something else in these first verses, and that is the grace of the love of the Father. Because as we will have the spirit to guide us as the spirit of truth, the spirit of Christ himself as well, he also says that the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. There's going to be a difference after the cross. But I'll tell you plainly about the Father. And in that day, you will ask in my name. And I don't say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Kind of seems like a, not the nicest thing that Jesus might have said, right? I don't say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. I'm not going to ask my dad to give you the stuff that you want. Well, hold on a second, Jesus. Aren't you our intercessor? Aren't you our high priest who stands before the Father for us at all times? Certainly. What he's pointing out here, and it may be even helpful for us to think of, in, in, not that you should insert words into Scripture, but a note into our minds that it will not simply be that Jesus stands as our intercessor in the way of passing a message off to the Father. This is not a divine game of telephone where we tell Jesus, hey, could you ask the Father this for me? And this is, this is the problem with, with some corners of Christendom. There's, there's a rejection of the fact that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And, and that that mediation doesn't simply mean that he goes between by carrying my message to the Father, but that he gives me access to the Father myself. Truly so that when we pray, Heavenly Father, he is not receiving a text on Jesus' phone that he shows to the throne of God himself. No, he's receiving those words directly through Christ from us. I do not say that I will pray I will ask the Father on your behalf. Why? Verse 27, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. This is not a conditional thing in regards to understanding it that we have believed in Christ and loved Christ. God has noticed that and now he has loved us, right? First John, the same author, he even helps us with this when he says that we love him because he, what, do you remember? First loved us, Right? figures of speech, the mystery of prayer, the grace to be found in it, Jesus bringing us into this privileged position. Verses 29 through 30, we see the message of Jesus being received. We see a light bulb. I mean, they almost literally say, aha, in verse 29. Now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech, which is kind of hilarious if you think about it, because he said, he's already said that in verse 25. I've been speaking in figures of speech to you. And they go, aha, you've been speaking in figures of speech, right? We're not doing everything entirely wrong here. But notice what they say. Now you're speaking plainly, not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. We receive the message, Jesus. Your mission makes sense. We're receiving your message. And we're looking for relief in what you have to tell us. Because at this point, sorrow has filled their hearts, Jesus has said. They're looking for some kind of relief. They're looking for some kind of hope, for some kind of courage. And we'll see the truth of where they find it when we consider Jesus' response. See, in verses 31 through 33, Jesus explains that his courage is preserved in the relationship with the Father. And he points out that there is indeed a problem 
with the 11. They have a bold declaration of confidence, of course. But in a short while, they're going to give away to fear. They're going to give way to fear, that is. Christ promises them. Promise is probably a funny word to use here, but he explains to them. He, he foretells that the hour is coming when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You're not going to stay with me. Is it amazing that when we consider all of our own failings, that so many of those times we can look back and say, I knew I was going to fail. And what happened? Still did it. It's pretty remarkable. Jesus tells them, you're going to be scattered. You're going to all fall away. And in an earlier passage, of course, we see Peter respond to that, and he says, ah, Lord, even if everybody falls away, I will not fall away. I'll stick around. I ain't going nowhere. Jesus says, Peter, you're kind of going to be the worst one. You're going to deny that you even know me. Synoptic gospel writers record that, that Peter even swore and cursed and said, I do not know this man. And so with us, we can so easily see the conflict of the disciples in our own lives. Self-confidence is a shaky foundation. Well, you say, hold on, I read this. I heard what the disciples said. They affirmed what Jesus said. In the end, they say, this is how we know that you came from God. We believe. Isn't that John's whole purpose in writing? Haven't we mentioned that over and over again? That John will tell us pretty soon in a couple chapters, I write all these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that in believing him you may have life. Is that not what the disciples are doing here? Well, if we take verses 29 and 30 and take them by themselves, they kind of look all right. They kind of look like something that we could cling to ourselves. We know that Jesus knows all things. We know that Jesus needs no one to question him. He doesn't have anything else to prove. And because of those things, we believe that he came from God. But it is always Jesus' response to the disciples that reveals where the disciples really are, isn't it? They're not putting their confidence in Christ. But oddly enough, they're putting their confidence in themselves. Look down at verse 39, if you would, or sorry, verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? This is an ironic kind of sentence. Are you telling me that you believe? Is that what you're saying? Is that what you think is going on here? Basically, he boils it down to saying, look, you're going to tell me that you believe, but then you're going to show me that you just aren't quite there yet and that you still need the cross. Well, this is October, and I told myself to save the Martin Luther references for next week because Reformation Day is on the 30th, but you're getting Martin Luther, and if you don't get that, you're probably getting a Lord of the Rings quote, so you can rejoice in that. But Martin Luther's story um, starts off with him going to college to become a lawyer, doing what his dad wanted him to do. He had a bright future. He's a very smart student. He had it all together. His parents had prepared him for this, and financially it saved up. And on, I believe it was the night before he was about to begin his studies, he was traveling through a forest on horseback in the middle of a terrible thunderstorm. And like many of us, he was overcome by fear. Started wondering if he was even going to make it out of this storm alive. 
one of the worst places to be in the middle of a thunderstorm, I understand it, is a forest, right? Trees kind of hurt when they fall. There's a lot at stake in Luther's heart. And speaking of mediator and Christ being our only mediator, he, being a good Roman Catholic, promised St. Anna that he would enter the monkhood and become a monk, that is, if she preserved his life in the middle of that storm. Well, God preserved his life, and he became a monk. But he started it all out of fear. And if you look at the rest of his life, you can see between his commitment to St. Anna on that night and the moment that he would truly be converted and find that the righteous shall live by faith, in all of that, it was a life of fear. It was all a life of fear because of his self-confidence. Again, he said, if you save me, I will do this. And what's interesting is that when we bargain like that, either with a patron saint or with God himself, our true hope is not only in that outside source doing what we need, but our hope is also founded in our ability to hold up our end of the bargain. Self-confidence, though, is a shaky foundation. What do you do when you're overcome by fear? Likely, we do what we can do to fix it first. Our first resort is, okay, how can I make this better? Who can I talk to? What can I accomplish? What can I fix? And if I can do that, maybe I can avoid that whole thing of praying altogether. But if we do come to prayer so easily, we come to prayer in that first way again, as we talked about Jesus' prayer being take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And we land simply on this side of remove the cup. Can, can you get rid of the trial? Can you get rid of the thing? Because I can't seem to do it. And maybe there is an opportunity for bargaining. Lord, I know, I know why this storm is happening in my life. I didn't go to church last Sunday. Or Lord, I know why this relationship is is just getting really messed up and my, my, my spouse is angry at me or my kids are going crazy. It's because I forgot to tithe last month. We think back to what we've done because our confidence so easily rests on ourselves. But it's a shaky foundation. If I can get that tithe out, if I can get that good deed done, maybe then God will fix this problem for me. I believe this passage shows us three things about fear. The first one being that fear shows our misaligned priorities. Fear shows our misaligned priorities. The disciples thought that because they had gotten it, that the light bulb went off, they had the aha moment, that they'd be able to withstand the conflict of the hour. See, Jesus is telling them, you're going to be scattered, you're all going to go to your own home, you're going to leave me alone. That's not the first time he said it. He's already warned them of this. You know, in the Gospel of John, it's just the conversation with Peter. But Peter is the leader of the disciples. And really, as the other disciples are hearing, hey, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to deny that you even know me. They're all wondering, well, goodness, if Peter's going to fail, what hope do I have? They're looking for something to base their confidence, to base their courage, to find courage in. And this is that moment in verse 29. Aha, now you're, not, now you're speaking plainly. We caught you. Now we understand it's so easy for us to boil down our Christian life to what we understand as the true foundation for our courage. Then it is for us to boil down the foundation of our courage on who we know. Because let's face it, when you become a Christian, 
the true doctrine is, when you place your faith in Christ, you are suddenly a part of the church just like everyone else. You have salvation in Christ alone. But then we do this whole rat race thing where as we're trying to grow and trying to obey the call to grow, the call to understand God's word and, and to apply it to our daily lives, and we see some people are really spiritual and some people are just not so spiritual, and, and we want to find ourselves in the middle somewhere, and, or we want to find ourselves over here, or we're terrified of being over there, and we're judging ourselves according to each other. Fear shows that we have misaligned priorities. The disciples are overcome by sorrow. Fear is filling their hearts as well. And they think that through their understanding, through their head knowledge, they'll overcome with Christ. Jesus gets it. If I can get it, then maybe I'll stand with him and I won't be scattered. It's a twisting of human potential. It's established in our trying to make ourselves all that we truly need. It's a very good American thing to do, right? We are independent after all. Secondly, fear pulls us into ourselves. And I would say it pulls us away from others as well. In verse 30, they say, now we know. Now we know. Now we know. They put more faith in their faith than the one in whom they've placed their faith. That's a ridiculous sentence, but I wanted to say it that way. They've placed their faith more in the fact that they have faith than in the person in whom they are meant to put their faith. When, when we're called to overcome by our faith, we're not called to overcome by the act of believing, but overcoming because of in the person whom we have believed, right? He is the object of our faith, and he is the source of our faith as well. But fear pulls us into ourselves. And the disciples said, hey, now we know, we get it. We have faith in our own faith. We need to take a moment to consider our own Christian knowledge as well. See, that pulling themselves into themselves, you know, they, they did exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. You're going to be scattered. Each one of you is going to go to your own home. You're going to go be by yourself and leave me alone. Fear pulls us into ourselves and it pulls us away from each other. Contrary to God's design, specifically as we'll see in chapter 17 next week, Jesus prays for the disciples to be unified. He prays for all of us to be unified. Everyone who will believe because of the word of the 12 disciples. Thirdly, fear blinds us to the love of God. Fear blinds us to the love of God, and it dissociates us from him, disconnects us from God himself. 1 John 4, 18, I wanted to find a good place to put this, and this seems to be a good one. John writes, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. I've said it before, but I'll remind you that when the girls are afraid, I run to this verse. I run them to this verse every chance I get. God loves you. He loves you perfectly. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Pray. Ask the Father to cast out your fear with his perfect love. Fear blinds us to the love of God, however. If we aren't basing our foundation of courage in Christ alone, then it's on our self-confidence, it's on ourselves. We're blinded to the love of God, and we're just left imagining that God is either unable to deal with the tribulations that we face, or he's uncaring toward them. 
And, and we come up with these things again, just like how we base our courage on our own self-confidence, we base our understanding of other people on ourselves as well, right? If, if there's some situation going on with another person, I might assume how that person's going to respond based on how I will respond. And we do that with God. We assume that because we're annoyed by our struggles that God is also annoyed as well. And how could God wish to pour out his love on us and to answer our struggles if he is, in fact, annoyed as we are? A wrong view of God is the root of sin. If you remember back to the garden, Adam and Eve were tempted to eat from the tree that God told them not to eat because the devil said, did God really say? And, and in that is implicit, this question, is God actually telling the truth? Is that what he really meant? Is he lying to you? Misunderstanding God is the root of our sin. It's our problem. It's, it's why we choose to disobey. We think that we're going to get away with it. We think that either God doesn't really care or that God can't really do anything about it. And fear just becomes a great cloak for all of that. It sets us up for absolute failure. When Christ comes, the word of God himself, the very son of God, taking on flesh and dwelling among us, when he comes to the cross, he calls us to establish our courage in his sure victory there. Not to simply say, I have courage because of my faith in Christ, but because of Christ himself. And yes, I do put my faith in him. But the meaning of having that faith is to say, not that I have built up this great thing called faith and granted it over to Jesus. But rather, he is indeed the source of my such that when I face the tribulations that Christ promises, we can say, as, uh, as typically attributed to Spurgeon, this old quote that is, is a great one, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. This is what Christ had on his heart in the moments before his betrayal. Because, again, his language shifts from that the cup to uh, more more pertinently, that he's going back to the Father. And the cross is just the way that he has to go to get there. All the world could muster against Christ by way of fear and intimidation and torment. This he overcame at the cross. Christ's identity is, of course, radically different than ours. He is the Son of God. He can do things that we could never dream of. But just as sure as he leads us to join him in his position before the Father... Remember, he says, I will not pray to the Father. He himself loves you. You pray to the Father. Just as sure as he brings us to be in him as we sang at the beginning of our service. It is just as sure that he has taken your position here in this world. And that he can truly be, as Hebrews tells us, that merciful high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Yeah, sometimes other people's weakness kind of annoys us, right? We're like, goodness, get your act together and get over it. Right? Or our own weakness annoys us. Get your act together and get over it, we tell ourselves. Christ is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. That's what he chooses to do in taking that role as the high priest. But before that, he needed to take the role of a rebel sinner with nothing left but fear. Yet he overcame that. See, at the cross, he didn't just simply show us 
in the way that Hollywood or a famous novel might do, what it means to overcome adversity and to take courage and find it within yourself. What Christ did at the cross was to take our place as rebels before God and endure the punishment that we have justly earned. He was able to do so and to overcome the fear of it as well. The cross stands as the world's attempt at pouring fear into the cup of judgment that Christ drank and that the resurrection of Christ proves it was a pointless attempt. That the world could not muster up enough fear and enough imposition into Christ's life to cause him to fail. Instead, at the cross, Christ redeems us to the love of the Father so that we might overcome the fear that plagues us apart from him. He says in verse 33, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. Again, when Christ says something, it's as good as done. He doesn't say in this moment, it's fascinating, verse 33, he doesn't say, what I'm about to do on the cross, I do so that in me you may have peace. It is what he's going to do in the cross, but he doesn't have to say, hey guys, don't worry, I'm going to fix it. He's saying, I have fixed it. That's the sure victory. Now, if he was so sure of his victory before he went to the cross, how sure should we be of his victory now that we live on the other side of it? What kind of courage is available to you, Christian? What depth of confidence is there to be found where you can truly place your courage on a solid rock that's not going to crumble when your day doesn't go well? Christ endured all of our bad days He endures them with us so that we might have the love of the Father and the peace that he provides for us. The Father's love then is what destroys the fear that is built into our lives. All those conflicts that we mentioned, fear showing our misaligned priorities, the love of the Father realigns our priorities, fear pulling ourselves into ourselves. The love of the Father pulls us out of ourselves, out of bondage to self. The fact that fear blinds us to the love of God, the love of God itself chases away the fear because there is no fear in love. Access to this kind of courage, the courage of Christ himself is found in the love of the Father. And we have that access through faith and love, as he said. He said, the Father himself loves you. And if you want to know what that love is like, love me, believe in me. Christ is the bridge to the Father. We're not separated from him. We are brought in by the love of Christ into the love of the Father as well. What do we need to do in light of all of this? Overcome fear through the love of God in prayer. I've mentioned it hopefully every week that we've come to it, but Jesus has multiple times now called us to pray, to pray and believe, to pray expecting that what we ask for we have in him. When we pray in his name, These are all conditional, of course, in that when we abide in Christ and when we make Christ's priorities our priorities, then our prayer life is transformed so that the requests that we bring to God are in line with the mission of Christ himself. But if if all of the calls prior in chapter 16 and before to come to prayer, if they haven't moved you to prayer the way you feel you need to be moved, Perhaps it is this promise of peace that comes with it. Jesus himself said, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. That is the source of Christ's peace, and that's what he wants to bring us into as well. 
We need this peace because fear plagues us day by day. There's all sorts of kinds of fear. One of the worst fears is that fear of being alone. That fear of loneliness can be overwhelming. It can be crippling. It can stop us from doing even what good in our lives we might be able to embrace easily. It is important for us to pull passages of Scripture, to teach ourselves truth, to listen to the spirit of truth from God's Word. One of the big ones that I've been looking at often is Hebrews 13.5, where the author says that Jesus himself promises us he will never leave us or forsake us. Before that, he says to be content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The courage of Christ was grounded in his communion with the Father, the presence of God. It's amazing when Jesus calls us to things that we can see he himself doing as well. C.S. Lewis says this in regards to the desire for the presence of Jesus. And it might have been uh, you know, a good thing for us to consider in light of our discussion of heaven. C.S. Lewis says, Just in proportion as the desire grows, that is the desire to be with God. Our fear, lest it should be a mercenary desire, will die away and finally be recognized as an absurdity. C.S. Lewis quotes always need to be read twice. Just in proportion, in the same way, as our desire for the presence of God grows, our fear will die away. And it will be recognized as an absurdity. It's a hard thing. When we're afraid, it is very hard for us to accept that it is wrong for us to be afraid. We ought not be afraid, church. But God is compassionate, compassionate to us in our fear. So don't take this as, as, a, as a command to say, well, next time I see somebody being afraid, I'll just say, hey, get your act together. Man, that's so annoying. Don't be afraid. Stop it. No. Draw them to truth. Draw them to the truth of the Father. Sit down and pray with that person. Tell them, you know, Jesus said we can pray to his Father. Let's do that right now. Maybe change from the times that, like myself, we so often say, great, I'll be praying for you. Right? It, it almost feels like as we say those words, we are walking backwards and our voice is fading into the background to where we say, prayer is meaningless. I'm going to do it later. Not really taking your problem serious right now. It's not a bad thing to pray later for somebody. I'm sorry if that came across that way. But perhaps it might be that thing that changes that person's fear to faith and to courage that we would sit and pray with them and say, Father, give us the courage that Jesus had when he faced the cross. So I have two things for you at the end. One thing to consider. What in this world has your attention through fear to a greater degree than the Father has your attention through his love? What in this world has your attention because it has you so terrified? And it has more of your attention than the Father who loves you has your attention. Can you figure out what that thing is? Because it's probably more than just a fear. It's probably becoming an idol. And church, it is worse for us to have idols than it is to have adversaries. It is worse for us to have a thing that we have granted that position in our hearts and in one sense excused ourselves to fear that thing. Because that's where sin comes in. That's where the adversary and the ad adversity and the tribulations become more than just difficulties and can lead us into temptation. So what in this world has your attention through fear to a greater degree than the Father has your attention through love? Either fear or love is going to motivate your thoughts and your actions in this life, especially towards other people. 
every decision you make in one way, shape, or form, you can boil it down to a foundation of fear or a foundation of love. Secondly, one thing to do at the outset of the fears that you face, that is when you begin to see it, feel it, hear it, at the outset of the fears of your face, run to the sanctuary of his love. Find a way to run to Christ. If it can be a literal, physical movement to another place where you can get away from that thing, not too close to the speaker, get away from that thing, (laughs) and set your heart on Christ fully, great. If, if you can't, if you're in your car and the fear is hitting you, Lord, help. Father, show me your love. Overcome my fear. Grant me courage. Do the things that you've promised that if I ask for them, you're going to give them to me. And I'll expect them with humility and faith. We're going to sing in Christ alone. I'll invite the musicians to come up. One of the great... Sorry, that was an invitation for the musicians to come up with. One of the great lines in this modern hymn that was written in Christ Alone. We're going to sing together, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. The power of Christ in you, the courage of Christ in you as well, is that there is no fear, not even in death. To the extent of our last moment on this earth, we have an ability to overcome fear through the courage of Christ's sure victory. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you this morning for your grace. We thank you that in your kindness we find everything that we need. The love of the Father. What a mysterious and wonderful thing that Jesus tells us. And I'm not going to pray for you <laughs> because you can talk to the Father. He himself loves you. I thank you that we stand in Christ and that for my brothers and sisters this morning that may be facing some fear, some, some overwhelming opposition where there is a sure sanctuary for us to find in your love and there is a never-ending supply of courage for us as we believe in what Christ has done for us. How will he who has not spared his own son not give us all things? Lord, we thank you so much for your love. And we pray you'd help us to sing of your love back to you now by faith, filled with your spirit, and in such a way that glorifies you. We do indeed pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.